Well, today we're reminded of the many wonderful, comforting roles that our fathers play in our lives. I first learned about all this because, by God's grace, I have a great dad. He's actually here with us today. Happy Father's Day, Dad. But also because, in God's great grace, I have had the privilege of getting to be a dad. And over the last 12 years, I've learned that there are all sorts of ways that dads serve as a comfort to their kids. Now, apparently the last couple times I've had the privilege of preaching here, I've mentioned my kids by name, and they have asked me not to mention them by name today. (laughs) And so, my four unnamed children are often comforted by me in a variety of ways. Just in the last 36 hours or so, I have served as Dad the Pillow, Dad the Bad Dream Consoler, Dad the uh, Made-to-Order Omelet Chef, Dad the Minor Emergency Medical Technician, Dad the Referee, the Justice Enforcer, the Giant Inflatable Slide Repairman, and the bedtime story reader. All of these brought varying degrees of comfort to my children, my four unnamed children. And even if that's not been your experience, maybe because you're not a dad or maybe because you didn't have a great dad, I still think you know what I'm talking about. Because even in the discomfort that comes from the absence of a father or from the sinful failings of a father, we realize what a big gap they fill in our lives. And so we have to ask that if human fathers have such a big impact, what does this tell us about our heavenly father? Is there any correlation? Is the sovereign creator of the universe too distant, too busy, too self-centered to comfort us in our brokenness? And even if he might comfort some of us, is he willing to comfort all of us? Can some of us move ourselves outside the reach of the comfort of God? Those are good questions to ask, and we we wouldn't be the first ones to ask those kinds of questions. In fact, it's those kinds of questions that will bring us over the next three weeks to Isaiah chapter 40. If you would, turn in your Bibles there. We're going to have the privilege of spending the next three Sundays in this particular chapter. It is a marvelous and encouraging and convicting and comforting chapter of God's Word. You can find it on page 599 if you're using the Red Bibles in front of you. Now, this rich and glorious chapter sits at a junction point uh, in the book of Isaiah. So in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God has sent his prophet Isaiah to preach to a people of unclean lips who have calloused hearts and dull ears. And those people, they serve idols and they trust in the chariots of foreign gods and they don't trust in the one true and living God. And so much like the rest of scripture that's preceded it, Isaiah is filled with all kinds of warnings about the consequences for such unfaithfulness or faithlessness. And, And chapter 39, if you just look a little to the left, It ends with a grim oracle to King Hezekiah. The exile is coming. The people of God will soon be banished from their promised land and sent as captives 
to the cruel and pagan nation of Babylon. And yet, in the midst of all these warnings, God also continues to promise that he will save his people, that he will dwell with his people, that he will preserve the line of David, that he will send his Messiah. And so how are we to understand that these warnings and these promises fit together? Because at the end of chapter 39, staring down the barrel of exile, it would be easy to think that all the promises have failed, that only the warnings come true, and that God won't or that God can't restore his people. And that's where we find Isaiah 40. God turns in this chapter from speaking through Isaiah to his own people, to the people of his time, and he begins to speak through Isaiah to people 150 years later. He speaks through Isaiah to those people who are going to be returning back from the exile. Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 are addressed to those particular people. As they come back, they have people who have been persecuted and isolated. They have been far from their home and from the right worship of their God. And you have to assume that all kinds of questions have been coming up in their hearts and on their lips. Does God want to save us? Does God have the power to save us? Does God intend to save us even if he can? It's those kinds of questions that God will answer in Isaiah chapter 40. And spoiler alert, the answer is an emphatic yes. Yes, God wants to save his people. And yes, God can save his people. And yes, God will save his people. They are still his people, and he is still their God. And so this morning, we're going to look at just verses 1 through 11. And so follow along as I read. Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Praise God for his word. What a marvelous, what a glorious, what a rich chapter for us to feast on for the next few weeks. There is enough in here for us to dwell on for a lifetime or even for eternity. But I think the simple message of the 11 verses we're going to wrap our hands around today is that God's enduring word comforts and commissions his people. God's enduring word comforts and commissions his people. There's a lot happening in these 11 verses, but those are the two things I want us to walk away with today. Knowing that we can receive comfort from the Lord and that we have been commissioned by him to do his work. That'll serve as the the general outline of my sermon this morning. I want us to look at how the Lord comforts his people and then how he commissions them. And as a heads up, we'll spend more time unpacking the way he comforts us before closing with how we are commissioned. Look back at verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. There's this emphatic repetition it, it signifies the, the, the depth of the comfort, the breadth of the comfort. This is not ordinary comfort, but this is comfort in abundance. And to a beleaguered, exiled people, this word cup comes as a cup of cold water in a dry and weary land. You see, with the Israelites, because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, they have been separated from one another from their promised land, and seemingly from God himself. Because living under the just condemnation of God and the consequences of our sin is a brutal existence. It's a brutal existence in this life or the next. But God, being rich in mercy, with which he loved his people, does not leave them as orphans, but speaks to them with new and tender mercies. And I want you to see how this comfort comes in two important forms. First, this comfort comes in the person of the Lord. And secondly, it comes in the pardon of the Lord. So I know we've got some note takers out there. And my first point has two sub points. The person of the Lord and the pardon of the Lord. You see, God depicts himself here with multiple metaphors, all intended to comfort his people. Here we see the Lord as victorious king, as a mighty wind, as a strong but gentle shepherd. Look at the first picture. We pick it up in verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here, the Lord is depicted as a mighty king returning victoriously from battle. His heralds are out in front of him, and they're blasting their trumpets and they're shouting, Make way! Make way for the returning hero! Make way for the king! You know, we, we got to witness this in some ways just a few weeks back with the coronation of King Charles. 
And amidst all the pageantry and all the pomp, there was one picture in particular that kind of caught my attention. Maybe it's my background uh, with some time in civil engineering. Maybe, maybe it's just the, the oddity of it, the kind of the irony of it. But there was this one picture. It was a drone shot from directly over top of the carriage. And you can see the beautiful carriage. You can see the horses. You can see the people lining the road. And then in the midst of this dark black tarmac, all the asphalt, there are these light brown patches all along the road. And at first it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to make any sense. What is that? Well, it turns out that the city of London didn't have enough money to patch all the potholes on the road to the coronation. And so instead... They just filled them with wet sand, just enough wet sand to fill it up so that when the carriage rode over it, it would ride smooth. In all the grandeur of, of a modern king with millions and millions spent to declare his kingship, all the, the best that they could do was to pour some wet sand in some holes so he wouldn't bounce along the way. That's the best we can do. That's all we can offer. I mean, even just think of, of every highway department project you've ever seen. You know, dozens of men with giant pieces of equipment moving dirt and concrete and steel, and it takes them weeks and months of imperfect work to, to create anything. That's not what's happening here. With a grand and glorious king, he doesn't wait for us to do the work. He doesn't pull together a whole bunch of orange cones and, and, and redirect the path for months on end. No, what we see here is a miraculous God kind of work. It's not a couple valleys are filled in. It's every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. This is the work of a sovereign king. He is declaring and preparing his own way. Here he comes, the marvelous king, to be a comfort to his people. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can hold him back. Nothing stands in his way. This is a deep comfort to us, that the God of creation desires for all to see his glory. It says that all flesh shall see it, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. God desires for, for all to see and to know this comfort. He's not hidden in some corner. He's not sneaking through the canyons to get there, coming in through the back door. No, this king, this comforting king is clear for all to see. His people can't miss him. He is an unstoppable force. The victorious king is unstoppable and this mighty wind in the way he depicts himself in the next one is an unstoppable force. This is a great comfort to his people because all flesh will see it. And the people of Israel might be tempted to think that while, yes, God may move mountains, but it's been people that have stood in the way of me accessing God to this point. 
It was people who exiled us. It was people who oppressed us. It was people who, with just the the swish of a sword or the stroke of a pen, could end all of us, each of us individually or, or all of our people. And yet, all that flesh, all that work, it's nothing compared to the strength of God. It does not hold them back. When God says move, they move. Look at it in verse 6. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. A couple years ago, we bought Carolina a bunch of lilies for Mother's Day, and now every year they come back. It's beautiful. And there's more of them than when we started. They're multiplying. They're, they're getting bigger. There's more. And every year we anticipate their arrival. Not surprisingly, the shoots pop up around Mother's Day. And then over the next couple of weeks and you know, days, everything starts to grow. And then they begin to bloom. And, and, and then they're in full, uh, full glory. They're awash in, in yellows and oranges and reds. But that radiance... It only lasts a couple days, maybe a a week or two at most. And actually, as of this morning, there's only one flower still left of the dozens we had before. There's just one. The rest have all wilted and dropped off. They've been blown away by the storms this week. And as soon as that last one falls, we'll have to wait a whole nother year to see them again. They're beautiful, but they're fragile. And that's us. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Psalm 2 tells us that even when all the nations rage together, muster all their strength, they are as nothing to the Lord. They, they can plot in vain. They can gather, then marshal their troops. But, but the one who sits in heaven just scoffs and laughs at all, that, all those efforts. He's not overwhelmed. He's not pushed to his limits. No. Our passage tells us that he merely needs to breathe on them, and they wilt. They, they have the strength of a blade of grass against an evening breeze. Just bends. Has no will of its own. The wind is clearly in charge. Take, for instance, King Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia, and in 539 BC, he conquered Babylon and became the ruler of the greatest empire to date, the biggest empire the world had yet seen. And the very next year, seemingly out of the blue, he releases hundreds of Jewish captives and sends them back to Jerusalem with the permissions and the supplies they need to rebuild the temple. And little did he know that two centuries before that, in that little backwater town of Jerusalem, a prophet by the name of Isaiah had said by the word of the Lord that he would do exactly that. Isaiah 44 verse 28 says, thus says the Lord of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. 
So when we read in Ezra chapter 1 of the decree of Cyrus uh, sending the people back to Jerusalem, it's not Cyrus's decree that got the ball rolling on the, on the end of the exile. It wasn't Cyrus's words that resulted in the temple's foundation being set. It was the Lord's decree. Cyrus, he was just grass. And grass withers and flowers fade, even the mighty Cyrus. But the word of our God will stand forever. The word of the Lord stands forever because God stands forever. His word is representative of his nature and of his character. He is eternal. He is true. He is trustworthy. He is perfect. He does not lead us astray. And so is his word. And so the people of God take great comfort in the word of God because they take great comfort in the person of God. How do they know they'll receive comfort? Because God said it in verse 1. How do they know that the victorious king will come and that all flesh will see the glory revealed? Because verse 5 says, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do they know how God will care for them? Well, they know because he tells them that he's the good shepherd. He tells them that he will comfort and care for them. And they can trust this word. You can trust this word. We don't need to seek other comforters. We don't need to seek other places. We don't need to seek other words. We can trust in God's word because we can trust in God. The last comforting image God gives of himself is that of a shepherd. Look with me down at verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. At, at first glance, we think that verse 10 has, has brought back the conquering king. What, he's, he's here, he's bringing forth the spoils of war. One who comes with might. One whose mighty arm rules for him. He has his reward, he has his recompense, they're all with him. And, and those are true images, but this time, the conquering king, he looks a whole lot like King David, that warrior shepherd. This shepherd is not coming home empty-handed. He has his treasure with him, and that treasure is his people, his flock. With the same mighty arm that he sweeps away enemies, that he kills the bear and the lion, it's with that same arm that he tenderly draws his lambs to himself. The, the wording there is actually the same. It's with his arm that rules in verse 10 and with his arm that he gathers the lambs in verse 11. It's the same arm, that same strength that we need of him to sweep away the obstacles is the same one that gathers in his people. And he brings those vulnerable newborn lambs up close to his chest. He, it literally means he, he folds them into his garment. He wraps them up and brings them to the warmth of his heart. To hear the beating of his heart. 
to know him in that intimate way. This is the comfort that God the shepherd offers to his people. He doesn't stiff arm them with that mighty arm. He brings them back and draws them close and holds them in. And he doesn't do it haphazardly. He doesn't do it uh, impersonally. He knows them. He cares for them individually. It says that he, he gently leads those that are with young. He knows the particular vulnerabilities and needs of each of his flock. And he gathers them in close and he cares for them. He is the wise shepherd. He knows how to lead his flock. He knows how to lead them towards green pastures and still waters. This is the first great comfort that God offers to his people. How does God comfort his people? By offering himself. We, as the people of God, can find comfort in God, in the holy, triune, good, righteous, protecting, merciful, sovereign of the universe. We can be with him because he has promised to dwell with us. And with that dwelling, with that presence, with the person of God, comes his pardon. Because in our sin, we run from him. We rebel against him. We seek to overthrow him. We seek to separate ourselves from him. We, we hide from him in our sin and our shame. And yet, he still draws us close because he has made a way to pardon his people. Look back at verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort. Comfort who? Comfort my people, God says. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't abandoned them. Despite their unfaithfulness, he hasn't divorced them. They are still his people, even if they're as fragile as grass. And he calls them here by their true name. Yes, they're currently exiled in Babylon. And yes, the Babylonians have done everything they can to change those people. They've even started to change their names from from Daniel to Belteshazzar, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names. And in the midst of all that cultural confusion, the Lord calls to his people by the name he has given them. He, he speaks tenderly to them. He, like a shepherd coaxing a lamb to comfort, he calls to them, and he tells them that the time of their warfare, or, or the time of their hard labor, the time of their duress has ended. That, that, that time of, of being subjected to the consequences of their sin, which, which always has a purpose in the hand of God, it is finally over. And the mercies of all mercies, it says here that their iniquity has been pardoned. Jerusalem, their old name, no longer stands 
for their sins and their rebellion and their idolatry and their faithlessness. No, they have been pardoned. That the term here literally means that, that the punishment of their iniquity has been accepted as satisfactory. It's enough. This combination of terms here only shows up in Leviticus concerning the offerings related to blood sacrifice. And, and that gives us the hint to know how this is accomplished. Because one of the mysteries here in chapter 40 is how is this even possible? How can they receive from the Lord's hand double for all their sins? What does that mean? Does that mean that they have to repay God double for everything that they've done? To repay their debt of sin? Has God been charging interest on their debt of sin? Well, no. The text tells us that, that they're receiving this from the Lord, not giving this to the Lord. So it's not that they've repaid double, it's that God has paid them back double. Well, is, is this just wrath? Is this just that God has doubled down their costs? Well, no, I think, I think at minimum, the metaphor here is meant to be that it's complete, that it covers all the way over. But actually, I think Isaiah really particularly, and the Lord through him, is, is using this image of, of, of a folded over blanket. It's, it's doubled over. And there's a layer that's complete that covers with the justice of God. And there's a layer that's complete that covers with the mercy of God. God is giving them, from his hand, not theirs, double for all their sins. A just response and a gracious response. But where does this come from? Well, we don't find out until we get all the way over to Isaiah 53. Just a few chapters later, we read this. Actually, turn with me there. Isaiah 53. Just a little bit to your right. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. This is talking about the suffering servant. This is the fourth of the suffering servant passages that we find in this, this section following chapter 40. Surely he, the suffering servant, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. How is it possible that their iniquity has been pardoned? How can they receive comfort from this pardon? It's because the Lord has laid on the suffering servant the iniquity of all his wayward sheep. Look down at verse 10, still in chapter 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It came from the Lord's hand. It wasn't something that they did. It wasn't something that the world did. It wasn't something that Cyrus did. It was, came from the Lord's hand. The Lord has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because of the sacrifice of the suffering servant, the people of God receive back double for all their sins. Because he took on all their iniquities, the full payment of the justice of God is laid down. And because of that, the full payment of the righteousness of God can be laid on us in the mercy and grace of God. This here is a beautiful description of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. 700 plus years after Isaiah 53 was written, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God the Father, our Lord, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, having satisfied the righteous requirements of the law and having conquered sin and death. And then he ascended into heaven and he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father and he offers this pardon to all who would turn and trust in him, who would turn away from their sin and their iniquity and would trust in him to be that double payment. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and all flesh will see it. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have begged him for forgiveness, if you have sought to follow him all the days of your life, then in that moment when he returns as that judge, he will call you pardoned and he will draw you close to himself. If, if you've never trusted in Christ in that way, I, I implore you, as, as Jada did earlier, trust in him now. Seek him for forgiveness. Seek him for salvation. And you too, just like Jada declared today, can go from death to life because of the comforting pardon of a gracious and good God. Trust in Christ. And fellow Christian, let me encourage you, trust in Christ. Do you find yourself turning to lesser comforts? Even now, as, as a member of God's people, are you prone to wander? When, when life is stressed and, and harried, when it's hard, where, where do you turn first? Is it, is it a nap? Is it a drink or a bite to eat or a human voice or, or their presence? And, and none of those things are inherently evil. In fact, they're all good gifts that come down from God the Father. But when they become our primary comforters, when they supplant the, the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then they become sin. And because temptation is constantly crouching at the door for you, then a, a, a little nap becomes sloth. A, a little drink becomes drunkenness or, or, or some kind of chemical dependence. A bite to eat becomes gluttony. A desire for human contact becomes lustfulness or adultery. It's not just enough 
to take some comfort, Christian. Not enough to take some comfort from the Lord. We must depend on the hand of the Lord for all of our comfort and trust that as all good gifts come down from the Father of lights, we are turning to him in thankfulness. A heart of thanksgiving that springs from the goodness and the comfort of God. And those who have received this immeasurable comfort, we can't keep it to ourselves. We have to share it with others. Because in our passage, God not only offers his people comfort, he commissions them to offer that same comfort to others. God's people receive the Lord's comfort and they offer the Lord's comfort. That is our commission. Final point here. There's lots of commissioning that's been happening in Isaiah. And we see that pattern carry over into our chapter in Isaiah 40. Actually, we first saw it back in Isaiah chapter 6. Back in chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah received his commissioning. And in that famous passage, Isaiah beholds the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And the angels are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as the glory of the Lord is revealed to Isaiah, he cries out for mercy, for he's a man unclean. But God, in his just mercy, sends an angel who touches him with a coal from the altar and tells him, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. His iniquity has been pardoned and he has received from the Lord's hand double for all his sins. And it's only then that Isaiah can volunteer to go out as an emissary for the Lord to share the good news, whether those people will listen or not. And so fast forward, we get to our chapter, and it's easy to see Isaiah's commissioned role as a prophet of God. Verse one and two, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Isaiah is to do this work. He's to pick up this mantle and deliver this word to a people yet unborn to comfort them through the exile and coming back from the exile and to comfort us as well. But the commissioning doesn't stop with Isaiah. It expands the pattern from the same thing that happened with Isaiah in chapter 6 is now happening for all of the people of God in chapter 40. It's the same pattern. Look down in verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Jerusalem, a people of unclean lips and dull ears are given the opportunity to behold their God. And he, he is glorious. He's the conquering king. He's the mighty wind. 
He's the strong and gentle shepherd whose word is his bond and whose promises are sure. And after they have been pardoned of their sin and restored to their God, they receive a new title. Now it's not just Jerusalem. Remember we saw that in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now in verse 9, it's Jerusalem, herald of good news. Zion, herald of good news. They have been commissioned to call to the rest of God's people, scattered though they might be, there to call out, Behold your God. Look upon this God, this glorious God. Look at him and be comforted. Wherever you are, O cities of Judah, scattered and oppressed, behold your God. And the pattern of commissioning continues. We jump to the New Testament. John the Baptist pulls his own commission from this passage. In all four Gospels, when John the Baptist talks about why he's there to declare the coming of the king, it's because of Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then what does he do? For instance, in, in John chapter 1, he says in 23, it's Isaiah 40 that I received my call. And then he turns the next day in John chapter 1, verse 29. He saw the Lord coming before him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, because he is among the people of God, because he is living as one who is a herald of good news, he points others around him to the Lamb of God, the shepherd who became a sheep, the shepherd who, be, who was slaughtered so that he could rescue his people, his lambs, from the slaughter. And that continues on to us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does that sound a lot like Isaiah 40? That, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have not received this comfort for ourselves, to hoard it for ourselves, but because it is an abundant comfort, an extraordinary comfort, the comfort of comforts, we offer it freely and fearlessly to all who are around us. We take on this commission to proclaim the excellencies, the glories of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who has brought us out of exile and brought him close to his chest. We declare these excellencies every opportunity we get. We speak tenderly to Jerusalem, not just saying the right words, but in a way that coaxes them into the gospel. Not in a way that, that is contrived or, or, or seeks to manipulate them or, or, or sees only the effect as the goal, but instead who loves them and cares for them and desires to see them find the very comfort of God. 
We speak tenderly. And we lift up our voice with strength, it says. We do so fearlessly. Because all flesh is grass. It'll fade away. What can man do to us? But the word of the Lord will stand forever. And when I stand here, or when you're in your, the marketplace, or when you're in your home, honestly, the best we can do is be one blade of grass that whistles to another blade of grass as the wind and the Spirit of God blows by us. But let's play that role. Let's tune that piece of grass to the best of our abilities to call to others to behold this God and to come into his comfort. We do this collectively. We do this as a church when we gather together, when we covenant to one another. We become a city on a hill, a light in a dark place. When we care for one another, when we, in the ways in which we preserve the gospel, guard the gospel, guard gospel community here within this congregation, the ways in which we do that proclaims to a watching world that God really does change people, that he really does draw those lambs to himself, that you really can have this kind of shepherd. That's how we stand up on a high mountain. That's how we go up on a high hill to declare with a strong voice, this is God and this is his comfort. Behold this comfort. We should comfort one another. We should fearlessly evangelize. And we should seek the Lord in all that we do. Because we can trust this God. His word endures. His pardon endures because he endures. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you. Have you found this comfort? Are you seeking this comfort? Are you sharing this comfort? I hope that we are, and I hope in ever-increasing ways, God would bless us in our efforts to do that. Let's pray to that end now.